You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. American football may have heard of an Omaha and that means it's an audible and if you're not familiar with that that means you get to the line of scrimmage you see something different and the quarterback calls a different play and that's what we're doing this morning 10 o'clock last night found out Ben wasn't able to preach and so um, we did an Omaha now I want everyone here to know and this is to toot Ben's own horn, that it takes an incredible amount of time to prepare for a good sermon, the kind that uh, that Ben preaches, and um, the one that he taught, uh, or the the style that that he taught us to preach. So just to give you a little bit of um, idea, a, a good sermon will take a minimum of 15 hours to prepare for. Um, Ben puts in more, uh, and his dad even, when he uh, would occasionally preach, would would commit to at least 40 hours of prep time for a sermon. So it's not a um, easy undertaking to prepare a good sermon. So that's why uh, it's a bit of a scramble when there's 12 hours notice. So I just want to uh, uh, keep Ben in your prayers for uh, his illness as well as, you know, the amount of time that he he prepares during the week. I know a lot of um, people say, I I would like to be a preacher because I only have to work on Sundays, and that necessarily isn't true. Um, So let's uh, go ahead and uh, stand, and we're going to read 1 Thessalonians 4. Oh, and I do want to, I guess, preface this. is I didn't write this in the past couple hours. This was one I had written uh, when I was an elder. And Ben says, hey, do you have one that you can uh, redo? So I think most people here hadn't. Uh, I preached it over five years ago, and most people here um, have either have never heard it before or forgotten it. So we're, we're all good. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 12. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us now... You ought to walk and also, and, and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know that, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one trans that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives us his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you have yourselves been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. 
But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Have a seat. Father, we ask that you hide me, that your message will be, be proclaimed, that you may speak to individual members that you want, that this applies to. May we open our hearts and hear your message this morning, dear Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. So I would like, you, I would like to introduce you to Margaret. That's not a real name. But when Amanda and I were teaching the college group at a previous church, there was uh, someone called Margaret. And she came to the studies we had, but she had uh, nine toes in the world, I guess you could say, and, and stuck deeply in the world. And one day she said to us, you know what, I wish I knew what God's will for me was. And now I was finally thinking, she's finally on the right t track, you know, let's, let's start, um, you know, really um, getting her to understand. But her question really was, who should I date or who should I marry? What should my major be? Should I take this job offer? Or where will I live? You know what, and I remember being in college thinking the same questions, what, what God's will for me was, and thinking it was those things. Yes, these are all major life decisions, but when we talk about God's will, we're not talking about the specific circumstances for each individual, but rather a global command for believers. And that's what we'll be looking at this morning. So previously in chapters 1 through 3, Paul is generally giving thanksgiving for the believers in Thessalonica. Oppose this to the letter to the Corinthians, where it was just chastisement after chastisement. Here's a couple of verses from earlier in the book. Chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we, not need, so we need not say anything. Chapters 3, verse 6 and 7. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly, and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. Now, in the final two chapters of 1 Thessalonians, we see uh, a variety of ethical exhortations. The first first two verses of chapter 4 serve as the introduction for the two chapters that follow. Verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us now, you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, and that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Now, the finally in verse 1, unlike English, in the Greek, it doesn't necessarily signify the end of the discussion. 
and also finally doesn't mean that the following is less important than the previous discussion. And here finally makes a shift uh, from the declaration from Thanksgiving versus, or chapters one through three um, now to exhortation in chapters four and five. There's also a shift in time from the past of Thanksgiving to the future of exhortation. These two verses identify the authority behind the teaching as from the Lord. In verse 2, we see that the commands and exhortations following are not new. The Thessalonians had already been instructed these matters in person. Uh, and at the end of verse 1, we see that they are obeying. But Paul is challenging them to live lives more and more pleasing to God. And now the entirety of verses 3 through 8 deal with our sanctification. And these exhortations on sexual purity should not be interpreted as the exhaustive list of sanctification. To some degree, the scope of the passage must also have been dictated by the needs of the church. The exhortation lacks specificity, but Paul's praise for the church implies that problems within the congregations did not exist on a large scale. Yet these were matters that the apostle wished to stress for the Thessalonians. The verses that follow provide some specific content in places the apostle apparently felt the Thessalonians were in need of clarification or encouragement. Starting with verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now God's will is in other places in the New Testament. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, 18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Well known is Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that, you, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Ephesians 6, 5-6. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Colossians 4, 12. Epirus, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. 1 Peter 2.15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now frequently, as I um, uh, brought out in the beginning, it's assumed that God's will is hidden or difficult to figure out. And this is what Margaret thought about the will of God, and unfortunately, just by her social media posts, one would not consider Margaret to be following in God's will. Now, clearly, these verses that, that, um, that follow reflect a narrow uh, segment of God's will, not all-encompassing statement of it, as we read in the previous verses where God's will was described or mentioned. But we can be certain the following verses are God's will. Now, what is God's will? Sanctification. The Greek word for sanctification means that is the person is possessed by God or also dedicated to the service of God. But the implication here is that it's an ethical component because a person dedicated to God would live in a manner consistent with the character of God. That's the usage here. Continuing on, that you abstain from sexual immorality. The word immorality is the word pornea in Greek. It's used frequently in Judeo-Christian writings, referring to premarital or extramarital intercourse, prostitution, incest, 
or any other type of sexual impropriety. Note that it does not say that abstain from sex or that sex is bad. There is immoral sex, and then there's also non-immoral sex. Verse 4, and we'll talk about this in a second. Verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. The culture of Paul's time used prostitutes in their idol worship. Men would have a mistress, and those with slaves frequently had concubines, while the wife's role was to provide a means for a legitimate heir. This was all perfectly acceptable in the culture of the day. Obviously, it was very hard for a recent convert to, uh, to Christianity to live a life sanctified while living in a permissive society. The message from Paul rings true to the Hellenistic society then, as it does today in the 21st century. Believers live by God's standards regardless how they, believers should live to God's standards regardless how they compare to the norms of society. Control your body. It may seem tough to do. However, just as in that we cannot save ourselves under our own power, we cannot live a holy life under our own power. Living a godly life is not under our own power. I remember back in college when I fully understood this concept. It was like a weight that had been lifted off my shoulders. I couldn't save myself by my actions. It was something that God could do, draw me to him. In the same way, I can't be good. I can't live a holy life without the Holy Spirit working through me. It's not something I can inherently do. The clause, like the Gentiles who do not know God, um, refers uh, to the lustful desire uh, condemned in verse 5. Make it even, even clearer that it was not a sexual desire that was forbidden, but the, under, but the unrestra unrestrained lust that led to godly acts, ungodly, I'm sorry, let me start over. Um, the, the Gentiles who do not know God refers uh, to the lustful desire condemned in verses 5, making it even clear that it was not sexual desire in general, but the unrestrained lust that led to ungodly actions that Paul was condemning. And continuing on in verse 6, that no one transgresses and wrong his brother in this matter. So transgress here denotes an offense against the law and God who gave it. And the wrong here highlights an offense against the person. So transgress and wrong here goes beyond a simple dishonesty, but it inv involves a violation of trust. So continuing on with a sexual theme, we see that not only does sexual sin offend God, the transgress portion here, but there's always an offense against another person, the wrong in this verse. This is because sex outside of marriage is temporary, and it's not in a covenant relationship. The other person, other person is being used to satisfy your sexual needs. Something gets overlooked when speaking about sexual sins. You're using the other person, sinning against them and their future spouse. So verse 3, we see abstain. Verse 4, we see no. Verse 6, we see not transgress and not wrong. These all point back to sanctify and are also grammatically similar to the word will. 
The Greek reader would easily understand the repetition of these four verbs as a distinct indicator of the passage's organization. Here, the aspects of sanctification are highlighted. Number one, avoid sexual immorality. Two, know how to control your own body. And three, not transgress or wrong a brother. Now, this is my own personal opinion. It's not endorsed by RBC, it's advertisers or elders. But I think Gen X had had a, has had a big disservice done to them when talking about sex in the church. I grew up in a, uh, a church, a biblically-based church, and frequently when sex was brought up, it was always brought up in the negative context. Sex is bad. Don't do it. And then, anyway, so it's, it was rarely ever discussed in a positive light. Um, and here's an instance. Uh, I have a coworker who's an Orthodox Jew, so I mean, like, can't even drive on, uh, on the Sabbath. Um, and she has to get home before dark so she can uh, finish cooking and have everything ready so they can eat on Saturday. So we were talking about, you know, how sex is addressed in the church uh, versus her community. And she says, it's really not even addressed at all. So she was talking about David and Bathsheba. And, and it's funny when we talk, she, she uses the Hebrew, the Hebrew names and I'm thinking, and she said the, the Hebrew word for Bathsheba and I didn't get it. So she talked through what happened. I said, oh, David and Bathsheba, because they're in Hebrew and we're in English. Anyway, um, and so she, they don't even bring up David and Bathsheba at all. And I said, oh, we bring it up. We bring it up how sex is bad. You know, we'll talk about that and, and, and go over there. And so, I do, and, it, it, and it has gotten better in the church recently where uh, sex is described as a good thing in a marriage, in a covenant relationship. Um, and so that's um, my admonishment and kudos to uh, where it's recently changed. And it's, and it's being done in this church where sex is um, shown positively in God's context. All right, rant off. On to uh, continuing in verse 6b. Because the Lord is, an avenger, Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. These warnings are not directed to the pagan, but to the believer. We are not to live in a manner that denies God we claim to serve. God is an avenger. However, it's not clear whether the avenging is in this life or in the future. The difference really is immaterial, since the point of this passage is that God's judgment is inescapable, even for those in the church. And really, we are without excuse because the end of uh, verse 6 says, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. This warning to the Thessalonican church was not, oh, by the way, this was a stern warning when Paul was with them in prison and had probably been addressed multiple times. All right, on to verse 7. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. The warning of judgment is followed by a reminder for a divine call. We should not obey due to a fear of judgment, but out of gratitude. Now, I always feel like I have an obligation here when teaching to inform hearers that our call to holiness is not for salvation. We're saved by faith alone in Jesus alone. Our, our obedience does not save us, but we are called to obedience after we're saved. The world gets this wrong. 
Often people think that they have to be good or stop being bad for God to love them and to be saved. This is called works-based religion. And all religions that I've studied employ works as their way to salvation. The Mormons must abide by a laundry list of commandments. The Roman Catholic Church, as defined by their own catechism, teaches a works-based salvation. Islam, the same. Scientology, the same. And really, most people in America will answer that works is how you get to God. When Amanda and I were in college, um, we did a survey and went door to door in the dorms asking what the percentage chance that they think that they would get to heaven. And most of them said, eh, 80% and would say why and they would list off all the good things they had done. And even people that had, were church says, well, I, because I sing in the choir or um, I do this and I do that. Even mainline Protestant churches are now blurring the lines between faith and obedience. Now, if you have any questions about this, please see Daniel or me after the service, and we'd be more than happy to talk to you. Now, note to us in verse 7. Paul was including himself and the other missionaries in this assertion. The standard he was preaching was also applied to himself. All right, let's go on to verse 8. Therefore, when it, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives, this, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Again, we see a divine instruction, um, a divine origin for the instruction above. Its authority did not rest with Paul and his intellectual qualifications or his eloquence, but from God whom the message came. Paul typically uses the word gave when discussing the giving of the Holy Spirit. However, here he uses the present tense give to highlight the dynamic work of God in the church. Now, when I'm at the office or something like that, when a non-believer does something in front of me that they might consider that would offend me, they frequently apologize to me, and sometimes I ignore it, and sometimes I reply that, you know, it's really not me you need to worry about, but it's God they need to worry about. All right, so we're going to uh, kind of switch a little bit going on to verse 9, and uh, this is dealing with the love for their brothers and sisters in Christ, which they've been excelling in. Uh, verse 9, now concerning... Now, this formula, now concerning, is found elsewhere in Paul's writings. The teachings that follows are introduced with an understanding that these are matters with the, with the church members that are already familiar, likely matters uh, taught to them while Paul was with them. It's very likely that the Thessalonian church may have had questions and, and Paul is responding to them. Uh, continuing on, now concerning the brotherly love you have, no need for anyone to write for you. For you yourselves have been bought, have, I'm sorry, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. There is no need. They're not lacking in loving fellow Christians. They're doing a great job. Now, some converts there may have experienced social rejection from their family, and Paul was saying that the church should be their new family with the brothers and sisters in Christ. In Gentile writings at the time, writers used brotherly love to describe love between family members. Within the New Testament, brotherly love is always used to describe the love between believers. Love one another is a Greek word that means mutual Christ-like love. Now a question for RBC this morning. Do you love your brother and sisters in the faith? Do you enjoy spending time with them? I know that this is a big push from the elders right now, and I really encourage you to join in with the fellowships, the meals, the studies for the men and 
for the men and women, and uh, one of those is the, the meal right after the service. Um, if you were, if you were kind of on the fence, I'd, I'd encourage you to stay and get to know some people and uh, build your um, love for your brothers and sisters in the faith. Verse 10, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Paul here is again complimenting the Thessalonians and their love for believers in their province, Macedonia. Perhaps they assisted tra Christian travelers coming through their city, gave economic support to Christian missions in the area, gave finances to those Christians who were in need, or even housed Christians that were kicked out of their home or town. But then Paul reminds them, even though they're doing awesome, they need to continue on. So a question for us, are we assisting believers who are in true need? Now, not talking about someone who, um, we'll get to that in a second. So the question for us, are we assisting believers who are in true need? Like those the Thessalonican church was doing. Now we're going to finish up with verses 11 and 12. And they deal with gaining respect from non-believers around them. Recall from Acts chapter 17 that there was political and legal trouble that was stirred up after Paul was preaching. Verse 11. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Now, live quietly here is the opposite of someone doing evil. It refers to respectable people who are not causing problems in the community. Now, I'm not sure why, but I have the Nextdoor app downloaded on my phone. And I think we can all think of someone on there in our neighborhood who does not fit the description of living quietly and minding your own affairs. In the vernacular of today, don't be that guy. Now, given the brevity of the exhortation here, there's some disagreement. A popular position is that the Thessalonian believers thought Christ's return was imminent and stopped working, waiting for the end. And a popular, or I'm sorry, and however, it's thought that this may not be correct um, because uh, Paul doesn't make a connection between the idleness and eschatology or the end times. But it could be just a good old-fashioned Christian work ethic. Whatever the reason for Paul's instruction, the takeaway is clear. We should be hard workers in whatever our profession so that non-believers will look at it with admiration. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. We should never have a co-worker say to themselves, Man, that Christian is such a lazy worker. All right, on to verse 12. So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Be dependent on no one. A needy church in the first century was a drain on other churches. They, were, they needed support from other churches who may also have been struggling themselves. But a church where every able-bodied able person worked could support the needy in their own organization as well as other congregations. Also, Paul did not want the pagans to look down on Christians for being non-contributors to society. Are you able-bodied and able to work? Are you looking for handouts from others? Stop and support yourself. Now, it should be clear from Paul's own history, however, that living quietly did not mean the church should tone down, tone down its proclamation of the gospel. 
On the contrary, Paul consistently encouraged boldness um, in this regard. The church was not to live so quietly that they failed to function as witnesses of Christ both in the word and deed. As a result, Paul and his churches found themselves engaged in a delicate task of proclaiming divine rule while living under Roman under the Romans. Now, under Roman rule, agitation for social change, as we know it in modern democratic civilizations, was not an option available to the masses. Obedience or rebellion were really the only two options available, and Rome dealt with rebels in a very violent and quick fashion. Now, personally, this applies to me. Um, without getting into de details, a federal agency recently came down with a ruling that affects me personally, something that um, I enjoy and something that um, kind of is a hobby of mine. Um, however, if I continue on and violate their rule in a matter of months, I will be a felon and, um, and won't go well with the government. So I have to think, number one, is this a wise decision? And number two, is this something that Christians should even be involved in? You know, getting in violation of the government because of a hobby of mine. And then you think, well, does, does my activity here promote the gospel? And I would probably say it doesn't. So, um, uh, you know, being frank and vulnerable in front of you guys, I'm going to have to comply, even though I don't want to, because we are called um, to obey the government. Now, Paul did not encourage Christians to be social revolutionaries. In fact, the missionaries denied such charges when they were leveled against them. Uh, in Acts 17, 6-9, the government um, uh, gave them uh, trumped-up false charges of being insurrectionists, and they said, no, we're not, we're just preaching the gospel. And earthly governments are, after all, part of the temporal economy of God. If we read the first half of Romans 13, um, we find out that we're actually subject um, to the authorities, even ones that are ungodly. And you think Paul wrote to the Roman believers, the, uh, the Roman authorities were, uh, you could say, uh, antagonistic to the gospel. And... Um, uh, so it's not the job of Christians to overthrow the government. What the Apostle warned, what the Apostle Paul warns against is becoming dependent as well as disruptive members of society whose reputation in no way enhances, enhances the gospel. So Paul's goal was to pro proclaim the gospel, win souls for Christ, and disciple believers, not right the wrongs of the world. So in conclusion, we are to separate ourselves from the morals of this world, yet we have to remain in the world to be a witness to the dying lost. Be in the world, not of this world. So I have two final questions of application uh, for you. The first, are we walking the fine line, neither alienating the world by being dependent on another, trying to right the wrongs of society that have no eternal impact, or copying the non-Christian society by living in a manner not consistent with the gospel where our actions are indistinguishable from the world. To do either of those is to fail in our God-given task of sharing the good news. And the second question is, 
Are we in God's will? That's pretty easy to figure out. It's not a secret where you have to go on a quest to determine the will of God in, in our particular instance and uh, stage of life. The will of God is for us to live a holy life. Can you confidently say that you're doing that? 